Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. As the war in Ukraine continues into its fourth week, the picture on the ground has largely remained the same in recent days with Russian military making only minimal progress, especially in the south of Ukraine. While Kiev remains under bombardment by long-range fires and civilian casualties are mounting, it is becoming increasingly uncertain whether Russia will ultimately send its ground forces into the Ukrainian capital, given that they've failed to appreciate uh, appreciably advance on the city. Meanwhile, negotiations are continuing, but look highly unlikely to produce tangible results in the next couple of weeks. This conflict will eventually be settled at the negotiating table, and Putin is therefore increasing the brutality of Russian tactics to get Zelensky to bend to Russian demands. Uh, Finally, I think the risk of expanded conflict remains. Russia's recent attack on the training facility near the Polish border and its warnings that Western arms convoys should be considered legitimate targets for attack highlight the sustained risk. And so as we continue to try to make sense of this conflict and where it's headed, we're really happy to have Mike Kaufman and Jeff Edmonds back on the podcast today to offer their thoughts. Mike and Jeff, welcome back. Really quickly, I think most Brussels Sprouts listeners are now quite familiar with Mike and Jeff, but Mike Kaufman is the research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA, as well as an adjunct senior fellow here at CNAS. And Jeff Edmonds is a research scientist with CNA's Russia Studies program and also an adjunct senior fellow here at CNAS. Uh, To start, maybe we'll just hear um, from you, Mike, and then Jeff, kind of, I don't know, two minutes about where we are in the arc of this conflict. Kind of give us your sit rep about where where you think things stand currently. Mike, you first. So I think we're, what, over three weeks in. We have a war that's broken up into roughly three fronts. And I think those fronts can be described as a sluggish Russian attempt to encircle the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Although right now I don't see any likelihood of assault, or at least a strong likelihood of assault in some pitched battles, both west and east of the capital. Uh, We have a Russian attempt in the eastern part of the country to create a pincer movement for, of Ukrainian forces in the JFO, the Joint Force Operation, which is a lot of their units in the Donbass. And they're trying to essentially squeeze them with one axis coming down south of Kharkiv and then another one coming up from the south past Mediatopol. And, and, and they are making slow progress, fitful progress. So that's, that's probably where the position of the Ukrainian military is most precarious overall on the battlefield. There's still the battle raging for Mariupol, where I think much of the city is being destroyed and Russian forces seem intent on capturing it. A lot of the units fighting for that city are a mix of Russian-led forces, uh, Rosguardia units and the like, uh, probably supported by some elements of the 58th Army. And then we have the sort of Western acts of advance. It's a bit difficult to understand what's happening there. Russian units were clearly trying to get past Mykolaiv all the way up to Odessa to cut Odessa off. Uh, but, But it's a big stretch for them. In, in terms of manpower, uh, logistics, and and the, the distance they have to travel to do it. Uh, there seemed to have been some mostly successful Ukrainian counterattack by Mikolaev that hurt their supply lines, which forced them to pull back a bit. They have a separate effort cutting north of Kherson um, towards Krivi Rig, which is essentially another attempt to cal- gr- cut ground lines of communications west of the Dnieper River. So that's about where we are. I would summarize by saying that um, it's, it's clear that Russian forces have taken considerable losses. 
they are still making fitful progress here and there. Uh, there's been a kind of a stalled, it felt like a stalled front, but I think mostly to replenish and reorganize. We don't know the state of Ukrainian forces at all. So the, the rate of attrition impact it's had on them is actually very much an unknown in this war. And it's probably safe to say that in the coming weeks, Russian forces will need an operational pause, but they're going to, the, the overall impact on them will lead them to be combat and effective. It doesn't at all mean that anything's going to end in this conflict, but it suggests there that they'll be motivated to an operational pause or a ceasefire. And that, that may lead them to resort actually to, uh, to directly pressuring Ukrainian cities, right? Because they'll be halted in terms of their ability to advance, right? They'll have to rely on other means to pressure Ukraine. So that's that's sort of the very broad summary of, of where we are in, in a conflict that, let's be honest, is difficult to follow. Uh, there's, there's a lot you just don't see. And we have to be frank about the uncertainty of, of, of trying to follow a war day to day. Jeff, you want to add anything on there just in a general level? Yeah, no, I agree with I agree with everything Mike Mike said. I mean, one thing we're, we're trying to understand is that, you know, we see that the Russian military is not doing a whole bunch right now. And so we're using phrases like stalled or exhausted or whatever. And it's just hard to tell. And I, I agree with Mike. I think it's it's probably a mixture of both in that, you know, they really haven't made progress for operational reasons. They just haven't been able to make progress, but also trying to fix a lot of the logistical, logistical issues they have. And, and also agree with Mike that there's just a lot of unknown out there, right? Like we we don't, we have very little insight into in the Ukrainian military. Well, I guess we can infer that, you know, there's still a viable force because they're still opposing the Russians and the Russians are still having a hard time making progress. But I don't, we don't know if they're, you know, close to collapse or if they're strong or, or what have you. Um, and the exhaustion thing is is hard to, is hard to quantify, right? Or, or qualify. Um, we were talking before the podcast, you know, yeah, I hear a lot about units getting destroyed. It's very rare that actually an entire military unit gets destroyed. Not, it's not saying that it can't happen, but one metric to use is that, you know, at least in modern military doctrine, if you lose a third of your fighting force, you're generally considered combat and capable. And that's usually, it's, it's kind of a psychological metric more than it is like a technical metric in that if one in three people are dead, usually the psychological impact on a unit is, is so much that you've kind of culminated and you really can't, you know, organize and, and push forward. So that's, that's one way to think about it. But yeah, there's a whole bunch of, of different things that are, are very hard to, to, to qualify. The Ukrainians have the, the positive of, you know, fighting for their own country, Western support, you know, right side of history that, you know, the Russians clearly were shocked. A lot of soldiers were shocked coming across the border, not understanding what their mission set was, not understanding who their enemy was. And so there's some real morale problems there. Um, does that mean that they're just going to fail or give up and go home? No, not necessarily. Um, it, and you know, to Mike's point, it, it's really hard. It's I, I should be, everybody should be very cautious about predicting a month from now what this actually looks like. But we can kind of figure out. You know, we can kind of get some some sense of of, of what the general trajectories are. You, I mean, just you raised so many important points, but there is, to me, it seems like um, a lot of optimism about how well the Ukrainians are doing. Um, and some people kind of going out so far as to say like that the Ukrainians could quote unquote win this conflict. Um, we were also talking before the podcast about what winning means and all of that. But I don't know, Mike, when you hear a lot of these reports about how well the Ukrainians are doing um, and that they could, you know, win this conflict. What? How do you respond? How do you react? How do you? How do you think about those claims? 
Sure. I, I think the challenge there is people don't quite explain what they mean. And to be frank, I think I've been guilty of this, at least on one occasion where I've, you know, I've suggested that Ukraine could win, but I meant in a very political sense. There's people out there who mean that Ukraine could win in a military sense. And those people are um, woefully optimistic, let's put it politely, okay, about the reality on the ground. Uh, Ukraine's military situation has not been improving over these last three weeks. For all we know, it could even be dire. So uh, what I meant about winning is that it was clear to me that from the outset, that there is no way Russia could achieve the political aims of this war. They've had to revise their war aims. Victory is political. That is the victory that matters. Military victory without achieving political aims is pointless. Boy, we've seen a couple of wars like that where you can achieve battlefield victories all you want, but you can't attain political victories what counts. You can't achieve your political objective. So you see Russia revise their war aims. To me, a political victory for Ukraine is one in which Russian forces ultimately withdraw and Ukraine does not have to make dramatic or significant concessions, or at least they make concessions that they are relatively the, the people are comfortable with. At the end of the day, it's Ukraine's choice what concessions they're willing to make. But that to me is what political victory looks like, right? Um, but talk a little bit more about the military picture because that obviously is gonna shape dynamics in any negotiation, right? So like if they are actually you know, holding their own, there's been some reports about them pushing Russian positions back in some places. I mean, if we, if you, I mean, I continue to believe like the best chance of negotiation is going to be when there's a stalemate on the battlefield and neither side feels like they can push an advantage. So what does that picture look like today? Yeah, so here's my best uh, kind of guess at it, I'd say an educated guess, that probably in the next two or three weeks, Russian forces will face exhaustion of a hard time making advances. They likely have one big set of, of uh, offenses that they can mount left in them, all right? That will create a good opportunity, both in terms of operational pause, but for negotiations for both sides to, to have negotiations and maybe attain a ceasefire and a compromise. If that doesn't happen, we will move into a different phase in this war. That phase is likely to see greater attrition and even greater destruction, right? Russia is mobilizing and deploying other parts of the military. It is redeploying units from other parts of Russian land forces. It has more military power than this. People need to understand that, right? And it's been pulling on that over the last two, three weeks. It's sending more units to the border with Ukraine. So they will rotate out the formations that have become ineffective and they will replace them. Right. And they're probably going to get a lot smarter over time as they fight this war. I mean, yeah, it's been quite unimpressive, but I've seen them make big adjustments week to week. So they're learning the hard way in many respects. Um, in my view, is that if this war does continue on, if it does drag out for months, for months, then, then we'll probably have missed a really important critical opportunity in the coming weeks because it's going to become even more destructive and even more devastating. And Russian political leadership is mobilizing the public behind the war. This war outside of major Russian cities is actually becoming quite popular, right? And that, that worries me. That worries me quite a bit because then- I just saw the stadium filled with people. I mean, the stadium that they used, what, for the World Cup, wasn't it? I mean, it was really, it's remarkable. Yes, yeah, so to your point, they are mobilizing the public behind. 
Yeah, and, and that means that they're going to start throwing the weight of Russian capacity actually behind this war, right? Russia's not to not to be glib and state the obvious. It's a large country with a lot of manpower and a lot of reserve military capability. Okay, if they really begin mobilizing forces and they want to have a grinded out attrition fight with Ukraine, the outlook for Ukraine is not good. If, if I could, uh, thanks guys. I, I, that, that's very helpful. And then certainly I think we're seeing signs of, of everything that you all have said. So it's, it's great to hear you all uh, opine on this. Let me take you in another direction um, outside of Russia just a little bit, but you know, the NATO defense ministers met a couple of days ago and the head of state government uh, for NATO, they're going to meet next week. And it seems it's, as usual, NATO is hard to read uh, the press conferences and the statements that they release are always vague, uh, but um, it seems what they're trying to do is work on force posture, NATO force posture out into the out years. Um, and then this is going to be a long-term uh, process, but a lot of money is starting to uh, be talked about in various parliaments, particularly in Germany, that's going to go towards defense. And NATO is trying, I, I guess, NATO is trying to get ahead of it to say, hey, just don't, you know, willy nilly spend money. We got to figure out what do we spend it on? Who's going to be spending what? On, spending money on what? Where do we need to beef up? Where do we not need to beef up? So they're beginning to, to, to get into this. And a lot of us are getting phone calls asking for our views. Well, let me ask you, and I know that you're, you're not necessarily NATO Nicks, but I'm making you honorary NATO Nicks. If you were advising uh, the section and the defense planners at NATO on what really needs to be shored up uh, at NATO in terms of force posture on the, the border, what would you be recommending uh, that NATO do? Uh, what, what do they need to buy more of and deploy where? Jeff, go for it. Yeah, yeah, I, I can bite on that a little bit. So I think there's the <clears throat> very near term and then the, you know, the more mid long-term adjustments. I think yeah. that NATO right now needs to be preparing for this conflict to become a Russia-NATO conflict. I don't know where my percentage is on that. It, it shifts day to day, but I think that's a very real possibility and we need to be prepared for that. And I think we should be leaning forward on deploying units in, into Europe right now. I don't, I think we should, I'm a little more, um, I'm less risk averse now deploying units into Europe than I would have been say, you know, six months ago or, or a year ago. And so I would be pre more prepared to do that. The longer question though, I mean, the, the longer posture really depends on how we assess Russian military power uh, going forward out of this conflict. I mean, this conflict in, in some ways has set the Russian military back. I mean, and, and when we're thinking about it, I really think there are three components that we have to understand. First is, you know, given, you know, Russian operational failures so far for them, I mean, they yes, they've made progress, but as all of us know, it hasn't gone quite the way most, most Russian military analysts thought it would. You've got three components to that. One is how much is this is attributable to the political military leadership false assumptions. The second part of this, how much of it, you know, how much of their failures are because they're doing a, a fight that they haven't really trained for. And the third part is like, to be honest, you know, how much of this is just the Russian military wasn't as competent as we thought it was. Now, the percentage of those things or what, are, you know, that's that's the work that's cut out for Russian military analysts going forward is to figure out the percentage of those three things. Which, which of those things is the primary driver behind um, the Russian operational failures. If it's the mission set and the political assumptions, then I think we need to be very concerned that we need to make sure we don't come out of this saying the Russian military is four feet tall, right? Because they have trained for the fight against NATO. That's a different psychological fight than going into Ukraine. It's one they've thought about. It's one that 
you know, soldiers have prepared for mentally. Um, and I've said this recently, like, I mean, the, the shock effect of these soldiers going into Ukraine, not knowing that they were going in is, is pretty heavy, that you wouldn't have that problem if there was suddenly a buildup opposite NATO. And so I think, you know, we need to, we need to figure out that equation and then, <clears throat> you know, adjust forces um, accordingly. But I think in the near term, we need to be actually pretty prepared for this thing to turn into a, a wider conflict. Mike, you want to add anything? And, uh, yeah, sure. So very much agree with Jeff. I, I think it's important to, to first ask about what conclusions we're going to draw with respect to the Russian military from this conflict. And I know, and I know initially we're going to draw the wrong ones because we always usually do, right? The wrong ones will be, uh, they're terrible. These, these, you know, why, why were we afraid? Uh, why were we afraid of these people? Well, this conflict has strong analogies to the 1939-1940 Winter War of uh, the Soviet invasion of Finland. And the Soviet performance was quite poor, even though Soviet Union decisively won that war, but it was quite poor. And where you don't want to be is you don't want to be uh, where Germany was, drawing the wrong lessons about the Soviet military based on that performance, right? You want to be very careful because you don't want to generalize too much from a specific context, bad plan, bad operations, and, and, and forced performance in one context, and assume that that's going to be true in every context and every scenario. Second, you have to assume Russian military is going to make adjustments and learn lessons about their own performance from the war, too. So it's not a question about how they just did in this war. But again, we have to track where they're going to keep going. They had poor performance in Russia-Georgia war as well. And the Russian military evolved quite a bit after the Russia-Georgia war. Then we were surprised in 14 and 15, right? And so we want what we want to do in how we right-size and talk about Russian military power and capability is avoid the cycle of dismissiveness and surprise, right? Where we go through these periods of being very dismissive of Russian capability, then surprised then being overly worried about Russian military capability, and then dismissing this again, right? This has been a tremendously unhelpful cycle, and I have lived through it, and I can only imagine myself continuing to live through it based on what I'm seeing right now. I'm just, I'm now selfishly speaking for myself, I think, <laughs> my, own, my own professional life in the field, but I can see my future. Um, as far as, you know, capabilities, I'm there with Jeff. Jim, you know, the first thing NATO folks are going to need to do is replenish all the stocks of the stuff they gave to Ukraine. Do you know that? Right. That they gave away a lot of yep. things they had in stocks. Yeah. Yep. So we're fortunate that Russia's in no military position right now to invade the Baltics or anything like that. Let me just be frank, because a lot of those capabilities have been, you know, were given on planes and driven over to Ukraine. And someone's going to have to rebuy all those things and remake them. They're not like you can't uh, magic them back into into uh, into Arsenal. So that's the first thing everybody's yep. going to need back. And Ammo stocks. Yeah, all those javelins and unlaws and man pads and all, all that kit, you bet. Um, you know, Europe, by the way, Europe's typically not known for having a lot of reserve supplies of equipment and ammunition. So I don't know where they are, but I'm going to make a safe bet that they gave out a lot of what they had available, right? Yeah, um, yep. yeah so I think that's going to be important. And of course, it's going to be an important conversation moving forward. Okay, what do we make of this? Yes, Russian military will need year, some years to reorganize. Based on what I've seen already, they probably lost three years worth of procurement in this war. I think people think it's a lot more than that, but actually it isn't. Like they could, we don't know what the economic conditions of Russia will be, but all things being equal, what I'm saying is that I've probably seen them lose about three years worth of material procurement in this conflict thus far, thereabouts. Um, and the bigger question will be what's the actual impact on their force. So, you know, I, I want to be cautious. I don't want people walking away from us saying, oh, this is great. We don't have to worry about our high-end fight with Russia in the Baltics for X number of years after this. That's not the case, right? 
I just want them to be realistic in how and how and how we anticipate what the extent of Russian military power and capability will be after this conflict for some years. And it all depends. We don't know if we're towards the beginning of this war, the middle, the end. How wars end is not how they begin. So we're going off a lot of assumptions. You can be very honest about it, right? And but I'll end my rant there. But I just have to be frank with people. We have to realize we have no idea where we are in this war at this point. All right, that's a good segue back to the conflict in Ukraine, Jim. Even though I love your your, your NATO <laughs> question, but um, I saw you laughing when I asked that question. <laughs> it's like maybe we should save that for the end, Jim. But I do want to get back to I mean, just kind of fi- figuring out you know thinking through the trajectories of the war. Um, Mike, you were talking about kind of the pincer movement, kind of a what, that could cut off, I think, part of eastern Ukraine from the rest of the country. That was something we heard from the Pentagon briefing the other day where, you know, they talked about that could be something that Russia tries to do. Um, If that is the case, uh, well, I guess my question is, how do you think Russian objectives have evolved? Kind of where are they now? I feel like there have been some changes. And so if we were taking stock in inventory of where we are, where do we think we are in terms of what is kind of top one, two, three, and four of what they're trying to accomplish. And I guess in the, Mike, we were talking about this before, it seems perhaps that the Russians have let up on their objective of regime change in Kiev. I mean, I think that's a little bit debated in the community, but there are a lot of people who have noticed that change a little bit less on the denazification and this idea that if you're going to make a deal, some sort of concessions from Ukraine, it's going to have to come with Zelensky there because he's really the only one who has the credibility and legitimacy. That's a really important change, I think, that is maybe not as appreciated. But so that's one change we've seen. But I don't know. Talk to me about how you think Russian objectives have changed. Could we be looking at a partition scenario? Um, I, I Kind of an open-ended question, but any anything that you two have picked up on on how Russian objectives in this conflict are evolving? Okay, so I'll, I'll jump in first. On uh, regime change, I think that's very much out of the picture. You can, you can have it usually one of two ways. You can either want regime change or you want a political deal, in which case you have to concede to the legitimacy of the leader in order to sign the deal you want. You can't have both. And it's very clear that they start out with one and now they're in the other, right? That is, they need Zelensky to be a legitimate leader in order to sign the agreement that they would like him to sign, right? Uh, they have considerable leverage. This fight now much more is about leverage on the battlefield in order to pressure Zelensky into the deal, into those compromises. The more precarious the Ukrainian position is, the greater the likelihood he'll make some of those compromises. And it's very much an impression on both sides of the trajectory of the war, right? What can they expect from the future? Is their situation on the battlefield going to get better or worse? Um, On the Russian side, we can see, of course, war aims and military objectives around those three fronts aimed at improving their position and making the Ukrainian position more precarious. Also aimed at solidifying a plan B, which could be partition in the South and East. They do have, they have a large part of the Donbass. They have the entire uh, coast of the Sea of Azov. They have the entire Kherson Oblast basically under control. They have a lot of Ukraine. They have Ukraine's only other commercial port at death, so the main port blockaded, right? A lot of the economic viability of the country is right there. So they are in a significant position to either have leverage in negotiation or threaten partition, right? And, and I, don't, I personally do not think that partition is a high on the Russian list of preferences, but, you know, 
Neither was the Donbass. Remember, the occupation of Donbass didn't start with a Russian desire to have an occupation of Donbass, right? That's not how it began. That's how they ended up because they couldn't get what they wanted. It was always meant to be about leverage. So we could we could end up with that as an outcome. Um, there are secondary war aims. That's very clear. On demilitarization, first, it wasn't clear to me what Putin meant by that when he said it. I think about two weeks into the war, it became clear to me that the Russian military is interpreting this war aim very, very literally. Demilitarization is a systematic destruction of Ukraine's defense industrial complex and key military infrastructure, right? So throughout these strikes, they are going after the defense industry. They're going after Ukraine's production capacity, and they're going after key military infrastructure that they've identified. That's what they mean by demilitarization. Um, so you can see that playing out in, in, in this war. Jeff, what I mean, I, what question? I mean, this this you can answer this, but you can also answer that question. If it is partition, though, is that our partition and a long drawn out insurgency one in the same? I mean, like because the, the we do see movement. I think from Zelensky on this question of neutrality. It seems you know we've had that Financial Times article and others talking, and he's made you know publicly said that he's cooled on the idea of NATO. Um, so it does feel like there's been progress on neutrality. I know he's trying to link that up with some security guarantees including from the United States. And that's you know a big question about what we'd be willing to put, but it does seem at least he's moving perhaps on the neutrality piece. Um, yes, there's but, a, uh, yeah, there's a lot there. Um, but that's, but, that's, I, but so I guess I like the sticking point though, seems to be territorial integrity, right? And that's where the Ukrainians right. seem like they're not willing to move. That's Crimea and the Donbass issue. So is, I mean, do we act, do you actually think that Zelensky would sign on to a partition or some sort of agreement that does give away Ukrainian territory. I don't. I'm I'm much less sanguine on I'm not less sanguine. I'm just not sanguine on on the idea that that there's a diplomatic um solution right now. I think Zelensky's remaining, you know, he he has said things like he he's willing to talk and stuff like that because he's playing the part of a responsible leader, but I think given his popularity right now and given, you know, the the situation on, you know, the the overall situation I don't think the Ukrainians are in any kind of mood to to cede much at all at this point. That that could certainly change if things collapse. Now on the Russian side, one, I don't know that I would trust them on any kind of deal. Um, and and two, I you know I I think at the end of the day, I just would find it hard to believe. And this this yeah, I might be totally incorrect here. I don't think Putin's very flexible right now mentally in in what he wants to achieve. Um, I, I, I could be wrong there. Maybe he takes takes a lesser deal, but I, he's been so maximalist. It would surprise me if he if he altered that. But it's certainly a, certainly a, a possibility there. And on the insurgency uh, partition piece, I mean, you can have you know an, an insurgency. I, you know, Mike and I have talked before. I, I like kind of the the framework of partisan warfare. You know, you know to go back to you know World War II and things like that. But where you have pockets of resistance, you know, some highly trained people that are able to to inflict damage. Um, you could have that across the country, whether you have partition or not. And I, I would be surprised if partition was enough. Um, I think that we would continue to supply arms. I think the Russians, I mean, they've communicated they want to go all the way to the West. So I think that's, I, I don't know that that has changed. So I'm, I'm just not very optimistic about, about the things I've seen uh, recently. But all of that being said, people are talking about a long drawn out insurgency. I personally think that the actually the, one of the biggest drivers behind this conflict is the Russian economy. And, and where that goes. I mean, if they're able to ride this out, I doubt that's the case. But if they're able to ride it out, then sure, we have a, we have a longer conflict. If, if the economy becomes critical and that becomes a, 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 a you know wholesale destabilizing 
part of this thing, then I then I think we're in an entirely different kind of territory where, and I've said this before, where, where Putin potentially escalates or intentionally instigates an Article 5 in order to communicate, hey, look, you're going to relieve some of this economic stuff and stop, you know, destabilizing my state, or you're going to have much more than what you bargained for. Mike, I know you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I just want to get one finger in there. So one thing that I wanted to add to the conversation here is that a lot of what I think Russia chooses to do very much hinges on the question of to what extent Vladimir Putin actually knows what is going on on the battlefield. Because the, the, the thing that I wonder about is to what extent is the military telling them the shape that they are actually in in this war? How connected is he to the reality on the ground? Because he's going to be making those decisions on the basis of his perception of how well the Russian military is doing and their likelihood of military success. And he's likely to adjust the war aims based on that. And what I wonder is to what extent are they telling him the reality on the ground and how far off any ex military expectations, uh, meaning their, their initial expectations they are, and what their future likelihood of success to be. Because a lot of times generals are not, not entirely clear. You know, I've seen a lot of our own wars where generals keep telling you that, you know, we're going to do well in Afghanistan. It's just around the corner. The metrics looking looking really good each year. And eventually you look at it, you're like, wow, 20 years for this political defeat. That's amazing. Long story short, I'm wondering to what extent he is getting the real story about what's happening in Ukraine, what the likelihood of success is, or if they're beginning to like feed them every week uh, great metrics about you know square meters they've taken and so on and so forth. Whereas their likelihood of achieving any kind of political, political victory is actually pretty low. But yeah, do you think I mean, that's, that's true a, also on the home front? I mean, Jeff, you can answer, you can add to that. But also, I mean, he, if he's if what he's seeing domestically too is him walking into stadiums jam packed with people all cheering and waving Russian flags. I mean, do you do you think that dynamic is equally true on the home front in in the sense of how much dissatisfaction and pressure does he gauge um, or does he sense? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think I mean the fact that he's so isolated, and he and, and you have the isolation part. You have him walking, you know, whether he sees these stadiums or what or, or whatnot. But the the Soviet and Russian intelligence services have a long history of telling their bosses exactly what they want to hear. It's not it's not like the CIA produces a PDB and you really don't care whether the president agrees with it or not. That's just you're just trying to you know preach you know truth to power. Um, you just don't have that there. And so I, to Mike's great point. Um, who knows what he thinks the assessment is? I mean, in one sense, and I think this is where what what's behind some of the arrests. He clearly sees that you're not. He's not getting what he wanted, but he's probably being told on the other end, like, oh, it's just around the corner. And to my next point about Afghanistan, I mean, we turn the corner so many times in Afghanistan, you end up right back where you started, right? I mean, it's I heard that all the time, and and I experienced this in Iraq too, where where this kind of can do. Don't worry about it. We got it under control. We got it under control when you really don't. I mean, who knows what kind of dynamics are happening in the Russian military right now faced with, with you know, hardy resistance, not being able to make objectives. And this culture right now, this you've got to just do it. you got to make sure it happens. I, I imagine the, the pol political pressure and military pressure coming down from the top is really, really intense in a way that it, it wouldn't be, for say, in our, in our military. And I so I think there are a lot of really, really interesting dynamics there. I know Jim wants to jump in, but like to this point, like what, what is it that they do you, what do you think that they think they can actually reasonably accomplish in Ukraine? I think it depends on who you talk to. I think, 
I, I think they're still operating under the the premise that if they that they can take Kiev and if they take Kiev, the rest of it falls apart. I, I don't I don't think that has fundamentally changed. Um, I think if you talk to soldiers on the ground and some military leaders, they might be a little more skeptical of that. But I think that in general, there's still the belief that they can do that. If I had to, I mean, like I said, the expectations at the top may be very different than the expectations at the operational or the tactical level. Uh, but I still think they're they're operating under that that premise that they just need to do this thing and the rest of it falls into place. And when you say the rest of it falls into place, you mean that they are able they're, to like the resistance subjug- just kind subjugate of, Ukraine? Yeah, the yeah the resistance kind of fades away. Falls away. And, right, right. I I, I mean they really focused on Kiev and the political leadership, and I think it, that in their mind, I don't know that that has changed. It might be evolving. It's hard to tell, uh, but I still think they think that if they can if they can secure Kiev, then you know, that's the center of gravity. The rest of this just kind of falls into place and that the resistance falls apart and they kind of get what they want out of it. Mike? I think they're probably betting that if they can encircle the capital, then they can uh, sustain a siege, right? And they don't actually have to assault the city. That if they have the capital encircled and they have several other cities isolated, as this war goes on, they are likely to encircle and get beyond Sumi as well. And they could have enough forces to to really put um, Ukrainian uh, units in the, in the Donbass in a real, real dire state. My sense of it is that they're still trying to put themselves in a position to get Zelensky to capitulate on these key demands, right? This, their, their initial plan, this quick regime change plan and everything that came with is no longer viable. I think it's very clear that in Russia. But if they get a lot of what they want, they probably can sell this a victory at home. And the good news and the bad news of domestic political support, I think, for Vladimir Putin and public approval is that on the one hand, it encourages him to sustain the war because he feels like he's successfully mobilizing the public. And all the people protesting and leaving Russia are the people that are opposed to this regime anyway. So he's probably looking at all of them leaving like any dictator and saying, yeah, good riddance. All the people who are going to protest are leaving right now. And they won't be around to protest any longer. And, and so that may encourage him to stay in the war, right? Uh, but the good news is that if he feels he has considerable public support, he may not need all that much to declare victory and declare success and essentially walk back from this, right? And to make a compromise because... If there is substantial support for the operation and he feels he can convey that he overall achieved uh, uh, war aims, maybe not all of them, but some of them, he might be able to to then walk walk out of this. In the, I'm being very optimistic now. In yeah, the next but that's of the, the piece we I just wrote is basically with the per, he has latitude to do either of those things. It makes it very difficult to know because there are no constraints. There's no political party. There's no overarching ideology. He has maximum latitude, like just as you're saying, he could double down and go for it, or he could come up with a win, use his control over the media and sell it to the public? I, I think the, the main people he has to deal with are their elites. And I suspect all the Russia elites will be very thankful if he ends this war as soon as possible. Okay. I, I, that's why I expect, I can't imagine anybody in the Kremlin besides maybe like Patrushev or somebody else being upset that this war ended too early. Yeah, we didn't talk. I mean, your point about like having the, you know, the quote unquote traders leaving. I mean, we his speech the other day with the kind of language that he was using was extremely alarming and upsetting, like the kind of very fascist rhetoric. But we I mean, there's just so much but we could take this conversation in a thousand different ways. But Jim, and maybe final question. Yeah, final question. And um, I, this won't make you happy, uh, Andrea, but um, I want to return back to something Jeff said, which was actually very important. 
And you don't hear this a lot. Uh, and I'm sure Jeff is wondering why we didn't pick up on this point. And so, and that is Jeff, you, you said that uh, really we need to be, I think you were talking about the US in terms of sending forces to Europe. But, but NATO generally, that you feel that they need to prepare for this to be a, become potentially a wider role, a wider uh, war between, uh, between uh, Russia and NATO, um, that, that uh, NATO would get pulled into that. And I'm wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah, so there are two ways we get there, right? I mean, as, as, as we continue to deliver arms to Ukraine, there's a scenario wherein Russia intercepts, tries to intercept those whether or not it's in Poland or, or what have you. And so you could have a, an Article 5 trigger that way. Um, the, the more troubling scenario that I think of, again, I'm not an economist, but, but the scenario that plays out in my head, kind of the dark scenario is that at some point, I, I don't think we've seen the full impact of the economic sanctions yet. I think that's coming in the next three to four weeks. Um, that if you, if you really have you know, growing instability inside Russia based on, I mean, regardless of what people think about the conflict, if you don't have money, and you can't feed people and things like that. That's a whole different kind of dynamic. And so I've thought that you know, close to you know, whether it's economic collapse or instability, would would clearly, in my mind, drive Putin to instigate and you know, a, a war between Russia and NATO, basically calling our bluff. Um, I think there's a there's I think it's more. I'm still willing to say I think it's more probable than not that this eventually turns into a Russia NATO war. Um, man, maybe I'm going on a limb saying that, but I just think that I think NATO needs to be prepared for that because in my mind, it's a very, if, if, if I mean, everybody tries this, you know, we're all playing a game of, of trying to guess what Putin's thinking. But to me, from, from the Russian perspective, a, a very clear way out of this is potentially turning this into a Russian NATO war and saying, hey, look, you don't want to go down this road. It has all the nuclear trappings, you know, nuclear talk will continue until morale improves, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the logic behind that. I think it's a viable pathway that he could he could certainly choose, and I I, I just I, I think that's that's something that NATO needs to really prepare for. Yep, that's very important. That, that's that's thank you for laying that out. Well, we're at the end of time. Um, gosh, there's just so many different directions we could keep going with this. So I think maybe we'll resume in another week or so for Brussels sprouts listeners. There's just a, really a lot there. Um, but I really want to thank both of you for taking the time um, and helping us all understand what's happening, where this is going. And I think a lot more we can do to think about kind of implications for NATO and the U.S. and others looking forward. But um, again, appreciate it. And until the next time. Yeah, Thanks. thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.